Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. Two recent studies confirmed what most of us have known for a long time. These two studies confirmed that most people love dogs more than they love other people. One of the studies was conducted in the United Kingdom by the British Medical Research Charity. It staged two phony donation campaigns asking for five lira to save Harrison from a slow, painful death. In the first campaign that went out in newspapers and periodicals was a picture of a man. And the line, will you give five lira to help save Harrison from a slow, painful death? After some time, they did the next campaign... And instead of a young man or a man in the picture, it was a dog. Will you save Harrison from a long, painful death and donate five lira? Not surprising, the dog got a lot, got more donations than the man did. To see how if this was worked in other situations, another study was completed by the Northeastern University. People were shown four news stories and then asked questions to elicit their level of response to it. These were news stories that were made up by the researchers, but they appeared to be legit with police reports and everything. And the stories were about a baseball attack, a baseball bat attack on first a puppy, second a six-year-old dog, third a one-year-old toddler, and fourth a 30-something man. When they compiled all the data... They found that the one-year-old got the most sympathy, the toddler, but, quote, it was not enough of a statistical difference between the top two to be significant. And the top two were the puppy and the one-year-old toddler. So the order was one-year-old toddler followed very closely by the puppy, then somewhere back the six-year-old dog, and then finally in last place for the 30-year-old man. An article commenting on these studies asked the question, do you get angry when you read an article about a dog that dies after being left in a hot car and then scroll past the story of a woman who's been killed in a car accident? I just start thinking about that myself. And you think, and yeah, you can see that pretty much in our society. That's kind of the way it is in our society. Of course, multiple psychologists offered their view on why people appear to love animals more than humans. And it's not just dogs, by the way. You can add in pretty much any other animal. Uh, they did similar studies on, with why people love horses more than people or cats. Why, why anybody would love a cat more than a person, I can't fathom. But uh, some people love pets more than people, some people love their cars, their money, their sleep, their peace, their freedom, their own opinions, their rights themselves, not surprising, and even their religion. Isn't it interesting that there are people who love their religion more than they love people? That's kind of a telling statement. So what do you love more than you love people? You might have to think about that for a while. What do you love more than you love people? And I'm sure for most of us, we can think of certain people that we love more than anything else. You know, we would give everything for certain people. Well, what about people in general? What about other people that don't fall into that upper echelon category? Do you know 
what God loves more than he loves people? Nothing. God loves people more than anything else he created. We're the, the, the epitome of his creation and he loves us more than anything else. John 3.16, you know the verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God wants us to, to know him and wanted to give life to people, so he gave his own son as a sacrifice. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. Paul wrote, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. First John chapter 4 verses 9 and 10. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And Jesus would say in John fifteen thirteen, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And in verse 14, he said, you are my friends. God loves us more than anyone, more than anything. There's nothing that God doesn't love more than human beings. To be like Christ is to love the Father and to love people. When Jesus walked this earth, ironically enough, it was his love for other people that got him in the most controversy. It was things that he did out of love for people that caused, that ruffled the feathers of the religious elite. He loved sinners. So he shared meals with them. He associated with them and he was criticized by the religious leaders for associating with the riffraff. He had compassion on those whom society had rejected and that caused people to doubt his character. Well, if Jesus knew what kind of woman this was that was washing his feet, he would send her away. He loved those whom the society deemed to be cursed, like the blind and the crippled and the diseased. Society saw these people who were in this condition and said, well, God has clearly cursed them. God is punishing them. But Jesus showed compassion on them. And it's never wrong to show compassion for people. You'll never be in error if you show love for people. Most of the religious leaders in Israel only loved those who loved them. And then only those whom they approved of. And many of those religious leaders, along with many other people, loved animals more than they loved people. And that truth is revealed as Jesus preaches in a synagogue and heals a woman who had been afflicted for 18 years only to be criticized by the ruler of the synagogue. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified. That journey started in chapter 9, verse 51. It will, the journey will continue all the way through chapter 19, verse 28, when he finally enters Jerusalem. All the chapters in between are just the story, the travel log of Jesus moving from Galilee down to Jerusalem. And on his way, he stops in a synagogue, and we don't know where he is, what town he's in. But there's a synagogue there, which is not unusual because almost every Jewish town had a synagogue. It only took 10 Jewish men 
to form a synagogue. If there was at least 10 Jewish men, then that town had a synagogue. If it was a, even if it was a Gentile town, if there was at least 10 Jewish men, then there was a synagogue there. And Jesus was in the habit of, when there was a synagogue, he would stop in those synagogues and he would teach. And as a, as a rabbi, as a traveling rabbi, it was common courtesy and really expected that when he went into a town, there was a synagogue, that he would be invited to preach in those synagogues. The event effectively completes the purpose statement that Jesus gave for his ministry at the very beginning of it. Keep your fingers there in Luke 13 and go back to Luke chapter 4 for a moment. Luke chapter 4, this is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. He is in his hometown of Nazareth and he's preaching in the synagogue. And in Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 16, it says, And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind. And to set free those who are oppressed and proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book. He gave it back to the attendant. He sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is saying, I'm about to do everything that we just read in Isaiah. I'm going to fulfill this prophecy right now. And then I'm going to preach the gospel to the poor. I'm going to heal the blind. I'm going to release the captives. So in Luke chapter 13, when he heals this woman, he is in effect fulfilling the purpose statement that he gave at the beginning of his ministry. We've already seen him preach the gospel to the poor, recover sight to the blind, free those who are oppressed by demons by casting the demon out. And here he's going to proclaim the release of the one who's been held captive for nearly 20 years. In our passage, we'll witness the compassion of Jesus, the controversy surrounding Jesus. And the or the confrontation by Jesus. We're going to start with the compassion, and that we're, let's follow along as I read verses ten through thirteen. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who, for eighteen years, had had a sickness caused by a spirit, and she was bent double and cannot straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, "Woman." You are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. Again, as was his custom, he would go into the synagogue, which he does here. He's a visiting rabbi. He's expected that he's going to teach. He's well known by this time. It's basically a foregone conclusion. They're going to ask Jesus to speak to the crowd, to read a passage of Scripture and comment on it, or just make whatever comments he uh, desired to make. The townspeople, and we don't, again don't know what town it is, but they were no doubt thrilled with the fact that Jesus was there. For most of Jesus' ministry, when he's preaching, there are literally thousands and thousands of people gathering to hear him preach. In fact, we just finished this previous section of, of chapters 11 and 12 where they were so many people, they were stepping on each other. And that was typical when Jesus would preach. We, we've seen the story of the feeding of the 5,000 and they, and, and that number was just men that didn't include women and children. 
And we've seen him later, he feeds the 4,000. Again, it doesn't include women and children. So there's thousands and thousands, but there's no synagogue that in Israel that would seat that many people. So it's a small town, no doubt. There's nobody from other towns that are traveling to that town to hear Jesus because it's the Sabbath day and they're not allowed to travel. So it's just the people from that town. And they've got to be thrilled to death. They have this most famous teacher in their midst and in their own synagogue in their town. Probably everybody in town showed up that day to hear Jesus speak, to see what he might say, what he might do. It had to be really exciting and an honor to have him exclusively in their town. This has been like Charles Spurgeon showing up at a church of 25 people and being, and preaching there and, and, and the people in that church is being thrilled to death. But that day, as people waited to hear, they, we have no idea what Old Testament passage Jesus spoke about or read or what, because that's not the point of the passage. We have an event here that, that illustrates the, the compassion of Jesus as well as the flawless wisdom of Jesus. So verse 11 says, There was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit, and she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. Jesus notices this woman coming into the synagogue. Probably most people didn't really notice her. I mean, they saw her, no doubt, but it was nothing unusual. They'd seen this for 18 years. This was nothing new for them. This little woman who's bent over at the waist, can't straighten her back, has to crane her neck up in order to see anything where she's walking so she doesn't walk into something. She has some difficulty walking, no doubt. She totters back and forth trying to keep her balance as she's bent forward. Center of gravity is all thrown off. No doubt she's more comfortable sitting than standing. At least when she's sitting, she has a sense of normalcy because everybody's in the same position. She's more familiar with the ground than she is the sky. Every time she leaves her home, she's looking at the ground and glancing up every once in a while to see something. And this has been her life for 18 years. We know from the context that this is something that one of Satan's demons did to her. We don't know why, what circumstances led to it. We just know this is the situation she finds herself in. Now, most of the crowd that day probably didn't even think twice about her condition. It's her life for 18 years. It's what most people, that's all they knew about her. No indication in the text that anybody walked up to Jesus before the service started and said, hey, Jesus, we've got this lady in our church that can't can't straighten up. Is there anything you think you can do for her? Or certainly the the ruler of the synagogue didn't go to Jesus and hey, said, Jesus, there's this dear woman in our church. She's been afflicted for almost 20 years and she can't stand upright. We've heard you're a healer. Maybe you can help her. There's no indication that anybody said anything like that. And not even the woman herself seemed to approach Jesus and said, is there anything you can help me? Any way you can help me? We think of the woman who had the issue of blood who said, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I, I'll be healed. And she squeezed her way through the crowd and made her way to Jesus and reached out and, and took a swipe and touched the hem of his garment and was healed. There's no indication this woman even thought about doing that. She's just moving into the synagogue, wants to hear what 
Jesus has to say wants to worship God. There's no shortage of armchair diagnoses of the woman's ailment. I read a number of commentaries who have their view of what kind of spinal condition she had. And while the options may be interesting, it's ultimately irrelevant because it's not the point of the text. What she suffered from is not as important as the fact that she's been debilitated for 18 years. Luke tells us, and Jesus confirms for us, that it was caused by a demon spirit. Though this is a healing and not an exorcism, it appears that whatever the spirit did affected her, but the spirit didn't indwell her. But whatever it was made her life difficult. If you can imagine being hunched over, bent over, every day of your life, trying to get comfortable when you were trying to sleep, Standing up, moving from place to place, having daily life, living in a society where you would probably have to go walk with a jug at uh, some point uh, to, to, a, count, to a, a common well to fill it up to have water each day and carry it back. The difficulty of just getting dressed, the difficulty of fixing a meal. This was her life. And verse 12 says, And Jesus saw her, and he called her over. Jesus sees the woman walking in. He calls her to himself. Now all eyes are on her. She slowly makes her way up to see Jesus. And she gets there and Jesus simply says, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. The verb that Jesus uses here is a perfect passive verb. It means that something was done for her, indicating that Jesus and, and her God does this for her. And she is currently in a state of freedom. No longer No longer prisoner to being hunched over. And verse 13 says, And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. And it was something that happened instantaneous to her. It's not like she had to, where Jesus said, You're free, and and, come on, you can do it. She had to tighten up her core muscles and hunch her shoulders back and lift her neck and slowly straighten up. It wasn't like that. As soon as Jesus touches her, she bolts up and it, it's a surprise to everybody in the room and probably biggest surprise to her. This is the first time in 18 years she can look eye to eye with anybody. It's the first time in 18 years her back has any flexibility. It's the first time in 18 years she can walk normally. It'll be the first night that she can lay down flat. Through the power of God and the compassion of Jesus, the woman's life is again changed forever. It had been changed for the worse 18 years ago, and now it's changed for the better. It was a drastically altered when this curse came upon her, and now the curse has been reversed. She's released from bondage to Satan. She immediately begins to glorify God. Now we can imagine. Being afflicted by something for 18 years, some debilitating disease for 18 years, and suddenly being healed. And the good news is that in that 18 years, it didn't cause this woman to deny her faith. She was still coming to synagogue. She was there to worship God. She was there to listen to this rabbi. And as soon as she was healed, the praise just flowed from her mouth. What an amazing day it must have been. I can't imagine 
When Jesus started his public ministry and preached that first message in the synagogue in Nazareth, he said, I'm going to release the captives. And that's what he did. This poor woman was held captive, bound by Satan's demon for 18 years. And Jesus, in a blink, releases her from that. But, in the room at the same time, there is a self-righteous killjoy. He was on hand to destroy the opportunity to glorify God. He seemed intent on taking something that was meant to rejoice and praise God and turn it into something to be ashamed of. He's like a guy who takes all of his Christmas cards and writes a critique about them. Terrible picture. Insincere statement. Overused cliché. Wise men were not at the manger. Too much glitter. Can't believe a tree died for this card. This guy is the Eeyore personified. Why bother? It's all bad. That's the synagogue official. So that brings us to the controversy. Verse 14. But the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, there are six days in which work should be done, so come during them and get healed, but not on the Sabbath day. He's indignant. He is outraged because he is convinced that what Jesus did was wrong. How dare he do something like that on the Sabbath day? He believes that Jesus violated a sacred commandment. This synagogue ruler is effectively standing before that congregation saying, Jesus violated the law. He's indignant, not because Jesus healed a woman, but because he did it on the Sabbath day. He believes that Jesus is a Sabbath breaker. He would have been content to tell that poor woman, Listen, lady, you've suffered for 18 years. One more day isn't going to hurt you. Come back tomorrow. He doesn't even address Jesus. He turns to the crowd and addresses them, saying there are six days in which work should be done. So come during them and get healed, and not on the Sabbath day. In saying that, he's really quoting from Scripture. He's quoting from Exodus chapter 20. He's quoting from Leviticus 23, verse 3, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 13. The fourth commandment, Exodus 20, starting verse 8, says, Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord, your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So Sabbath law does forbid working on the Sabbath on the Sabbath or the seventh day. And there were certain feast days that weren't necessarily on Saturday that were also considered Sabbath days. We see warnings of working on the Sabbath in other places like Exodus 
35, verses 2 and 3. Nehemiah 10, verses 31 and 33. Nehemiah 13, verses 14 through 22. The word Sabbath is the Hebrew word sabbat, and it means to cease. So Sabbath means something like cessation day. The day to cease from work. It originated with God at creation as he creates everything in six 24-hour periods of time. And then on the seventh day, he rested. It was first observed by the people of Israel when they, after they were released from captivity in Egypt and they stopped at Mount Sinai to receive the law and it became an ongoing sign of the relationship between God and Israel. Exodus 31 verses 12 through 14 says, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Therefore, you are to observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. So people are required to cease from working on the Sabbath day. There were some exceptions, some some exceptions to this rule. For instance, the priests could still sacrifice on the Sabbath day. They could still bake the bread for the table in the in the temple on the Sabbath if they needed to. And if you had guard duty, you still performed guard duty on the Sabbath. And if you were one of the people being guarded by the guards on the Sabbath, you're thankful that they're able to violate Sabbath law on that day. Another accommodation for breaking Sabbath law was circumcision. If you had a baby boy and he was going to be eight days old on the Sabbath and you were required to circumcise him on day eight, then you were to adhere to circumcision law over Sabbath law. So you would violate the Sabbath in order to fulfill circumcision rather than the other way around. In other words, you wouldn't wait, you wouldn't do it on day seven or wait till day nine. You would always, circumcision always trumped Sabbath law. By the first century BC, 100 years before Christ, Sabbath was a distinctive mark of God's people, rivaled only by circumcision. And it was a particular benefit for those Jews who were dispersed around Asia and Asia Minor. Because they couldn't come to the temple on a regular basis and sacrifice there, but they could always keep the Sabbath no matter where they were. Because the Sabbath wasn't about a sacred place, it was about a sacred time. That they would spend this time honoring God, thinking about God, worshiping God. The intent of Sabbath law is to cease from customary employment. So if you're a farmer, you don't do any farming on that day. If you're a barista, you don't drink coffee that day. You don't fix coffee that day. I guess you had to fix the coffee the day before and drink it cold. If you fixed chariots, you don't fix them on the Sabbath day. You're also to cease from practicing commerce, from trading, conducting business. After the children of Israel were released from Babylonian captivity and they came back and repatriated Jerusalem and Nehemiah helped build the wall around the city and govern the city, they were still doing commerce on the Sabbath day and Nehemiah told them to stop doing that and they finally did. But the merchants kept coming in anyway and tempting the people to break the Sabbath so Nehemiah would have the city gates closed on Friday night, 
And the merchants would all line up outside the city and chant and make noise to, again, try to tempt the people to come out and violate the Sabbath by doing business on that day. Nehemiah had eventually threatened them. He said, if you guys are here tomorrow, I'm going to send out soldiers that are going to kill you. And that seemed to work. It was also a weekly reminder of God's covenant with them, of his provision for them. When the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness and they would pick up manna, if on a Monday they picked up more than they needed for that day, by the morning it was rotten. There were bugs in it, worms in it. You wouldn't eat it. But on Friday you would pick up enough for two days and the next day it was just as fresh. God always caused the manna to, to last through the Sabbath day so they wouldn't go pick out on the Sabbath. And in fact, when it first started, there were people who went out on only picked up enough for Friday and then went out on Saturday morning to get more manna and there wasn't any manna there. They had to pick up enough on Friday. It was also a reminder of his deliverance from slavery in Egypt. It would cause the nation of Israel to stand out from the rest of the world. No other society had this type of day to honor their God, a Sabbath every week. A certain day set aside. So that made them unique. It was an identification, identification with God and as the creator of everything who created in six days and rested on the seventh day. But this is important to realize. Though God rested on the seventh, that means he rested from creating. He stopped creating. God never stopped controlling and sustaining the universe. He didn't create it all in six days and on the seventh say, well, let me see what happens now. He still sustains it like he does at all times. Over time, rabbinic tradition was added to Sabbath law. So much so that eventually it superseded the law. In an effort to keep from breaking the law, the rabbis over the centuries would add a series of safeguards to many of the laws, and particularly the Sabbath law, that they didn't want you to violate this level so you wouldn't actually violate Sabbath law. And before long, they became equal to or superior to God's law. Rabbinic tradition identifies 39 categories of work that was strictly forbidden on the Sabbath. Examples of some of the work, some of the things that were considered work that you're forbidden from doing on the Sabbath. Writing two letters in a row with a pen, your finger, your foot, your elbow, whether on paper or sand or a table or anything else. So if you wrote more, if you wrote two letters, then that was considered work. So if your kid was on the ground drawing in the dirt with their finger, you better stop them because they might violate the Sabbath accidentally by writing two letters. You weren't allowed to start a fire and you weren't allowed to put out a fire. And you hoped your house never caught on fire on the Sabbath. You couldn't sew two stitches together. You could do one, but you couldn't do two. So somewhere in their mind, two was work, one was not. You couldn't separate two threads. So if you saw a wad of thread there, you couldn't, you couldn't even pick it up because you might accidentally separate them, and that would be work. You couldn't tie things like your sandals or a, a belt around your robe, nor could you untie anything. So you can either tie nor untie. This is when you want loafers. You don't have to worry about that. You could not transport anything from any object from one domain to another. 
So you couldn't carry a meal from your house to your neighbor's house or anything like that. It is clear from Scripture that one was permitted to do certain things on the Sabbath. You could help a, their child if your child was hurt. You could save one of your animals if it was suffering. You could take your animal to be watered. You could perform circumcision. You could do certain acts of mercy. You could sacrifice, or the priests could sacrifice rather. They could bake the showbread, and rabbis could teach. There was such a controversy about Sabbath law that during the Maccabean Revolt, which is about a 160 years before Christ, many Jews were slaughtered because they refused to fight on the Sabbath day. And when Antiochus IV realized this, he would send in his troops to the Jewish villages on the Sabbath day. And the Jews would stand there or sit there until they got slaughtered. After one such slaughter, the ruler or the leader of the the Jewish uh, military, Mattathias, decided, he and some others, decided it would no longer be a violation of Sabbath law if the Jews fought back when attacked. They wouldn't attack on the Sabbath day, but if somebody attacked them, then they could fight back. That was probably a really good position to take. Especially if you knew they were coming for you next. But the synagogue ruler in Luke chapter 13 only sees the world through the lens of the law. And the lens of the traditions. And that has skewed his view. His, his vision is warped, it's distorted. So he doesn't see this woman as someone who has suffered at the hands of Satan for 18 years. Rather, he sees her as a tool of Satan to encourage the violation of Sabbath law. He sees something and thinks that it's not to be done on the Sabbath, that it's not approved... Therefore, it's a sin. So he would tell that woman, you've suffered for 18 years, one more day is not going to hurt you. Come back tomorrow. And anybody else that's out there suffering, you come back tomorrow. This is a man who's never had a kidney stone. Jesus is not trying to make a statement here about what one can and cannot do on the Sabbath. Rather, he's making a statement about the value of people and how important they are to God. Jesus is not here trying to dispute Sabbath rules. Rather, he is trying to talk about who rules. God never relinquishes his power to Satan just because it's the Sabbath. Instead, he is working his power through his son to undo the work of Satan. It is always right to show compassion to people. It's never wrong to show compassion. It's never a violation of any law of God to show compassion to people. That brings us to the confrontation. Verse 15 and following, the Lord But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each one of you or each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox and his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? There's apparently more than just the synagogue official that's anti this woman being healed. There's clearly more than that because 
Jesus uses a plural and says, you hypocrites, talking to more than one person. And Jesus exposes the faulty priorities of those who would let this woman suffer for another day. It was commonly accepted that those who owned animals, and in that society at that time, most people owned animals. It was commonly accepted on the Sabbath that you would untie your animal from wherever it was tied up or open up the the barn door or the corral gate, and you would lead that animal to the watering hole, and they would drink, and you would feed the animal, and they would eat. No one considered that to be a violation of Sabbath law. Oh, I guess you could consider it work because you're moving, you're bringing an animal, you're taking it somewhere else, you're untying the rope that's tied around the post. But no one assumed that they were violating Sabbath. Jesus compares what happens to this poor woman, what she has suffered to being tied up in a barn. There in verse 16, this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? This is an argument from the lesser to the greater. He's saying if you will go and untie your animal and bring your animal to a place to get a drink of water, why should we not untie this woman from the bond that she's been under for 18 years? What's more important, your donkey or the life of this woman? What do you love more? The animals or God's children? And he he ratchets it up by saying that she's a daughter of Abraham. God's chosen people. But you're more concerned about your donkey getting a drink of water than you are the health and well-being of this woman who is part of God's chosen people. It's always right to show compassion. By identifying this woman's problem as being a work of Satan, Jesus elevates the deliverance from more from a mere physical act to a messianic claim. He is claiming to have power over Satan. I've released her from Satan's bonds. He's working to defeat Satan. And he does that on the Sabbath day because God never relinquishes his rule, his power to Satan just because it's a Sabbath. Jesus didn't violate Mosaic law. He rightly interpreted it. It's, the Sabbath is in part a celebration of God's relief, a release of His people from bondage. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. He released you from bondage for that reason. You remember the Sabbath. This is exactly what Jesus is doing to this woman. By delivering her from bondage to Satan, Jesus is actually celebrating the Sabbath more completely than the ruler of the synagogue. Then verse 17, the response, as he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated And the entire crowd was rejoicing over the glorious things being done by him. The crowd of people are praising God for this. 
The only people that are being critical are the people that doesn't think that she should be healed on the Sabbath day. Everybody else is giving God glory. They're giving God glory for the fact that God, that, that Christ has straightened out this woman and now the rulers of the synagogue are humiliated because Jesus straightened them out too. They thought they knew what they were talking about. And they end up looking foolish. It becomes obvious very quickly that they're on the wrong side of God's word here. They're angry that one of God's children has been healed, that Jesus showed compassion for her, and that God is glorified by the great miracle that's taking place. They're more concerned with their tradition. They love their tradition more than they love people. They love their religion more than they love people. And if people got in the way of their religion, then the people had to get out of the way. It's always right to show compassion for people. What do you love more than people? I challenge you to think about that throughout the week. What is it in your life that you love, that you value more than people? Do you know what God loves more than people? Absolutely nothing. He loves us more than He loves anything else He created. He loves us so much He sent His Son to die for us so that we could have a relationship with Him. And we are to love Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. Greater love has no man than this that we lay down our lives for our friends. That must mean we have to love people an awful lot. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples when you have love for one another. Oh, you've seen it. I've seen it where Christians love their own opinion more than they love people. They love their freedom more than they love people. They love their own choices more than they love anybody else. They love their opinions more than they love people. Because they can't seem to get to a point where they can even agree to disagree. Folks, we're to be Christ-like and that means we love people. And we love him more than we love people more than anything with the exception of God Himself. But if we're loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, then we're going to love what God loves, and God loves people. And we got to love Him more than... You need to love people more than you love America. You need to love people more than you love the Constitution. You need to love people more than you love your rights. That's how the world's going to know who we are. That's how the world's going to know Christ. That's how we're going to show the world Christ. Because that's what He would do. So I challenge you this week to think about it. Who do you love? What do you love more than you love people? Ask God to show it to you so that you can get that area right. Let's pray. Father God, we...
confess that there are things that take the priority in our lives that we're sometimes even unaware of. Father, there are these things that we cling to and often elevate to levels of spirituality when in fact they're just excuses to not love people the way we should. Father, let us be the people who are known for our love for you and a love for other people because you love people. Father, reveal to us those things in our lives that that take priority over loving you and loving people. Let us truly be a people who are known, characterized by genuine love Father, that you might use us as light in this darkened world. Father, it seems to us to get darker and darker. And Father, we live in a dark state that needs the light of Christ. That needs your children to stand up and be light. To say, I will sacrifice to give light to this darkened part of the world. To see themselves as missionaries, as ambassadors for Christ. Father, send us the people that we need to impact this part of the world. That Christ might shine. That your power might be made evident. And you might be glorified. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please stand as we close in song.